welcome to the Nerd Party. It's not working. How long since you've cleaned the heads? The what? The heads? Do you have any alcohol? To drink? What? No, no, to clean it. Check the tracking. The rental place closes in two hours. Shut up, shut up, it's working. Time for a retro perspective. Welcome back to You Can't Kill the Boogeyman, the special retrospective here on The Nerd Party looking at the Halloween movies from the perspective of two lifelong fans as we count down to Halloween uh, 2018. I am one of the people pleased to be here with you, John Mills, and with me is Matt Hansen. Matt, how are you? So happy to be here. We're really close to the release of this new Halloween. The reviews are looking good. I'm very excited, so... I'm ready to talk Halloween. Yes, me too, me too. And we're ready to talk Halloween, but of course, we want to make sure that you know here on The Nerd Party, you can go to thenerdparty.com and you can check out a whole bunch of shows, everything from Star Wars to Doctor Who to Star Trek to nerd nuptials to film festivals to you name it, we got it. Come on down to thenerdparty.com. You want to give us some feedback on this series, thenerdparty.com slash contact, look up filibuster, drop us a line there. You can, of course, go over and find The Nerd Party over on Facebook and Instagram, and Join Nerd Party is the handle over on Twitter. So, all right, we got that preamble out of the way. We have discussed Halloween, and we're coming in here in a special episode. We're going to be doing this um, this episode here, but this is going to have a tie-in with Missing Frames, uh, Sean Eastridge's show here. But before we get too deep in, just as a recap, we know how we approached the first Halloween. Matt, what was your first experience with the second Halloween? I want to say my my first experience with Halloween 2, which is the one we're, we're talking about today, obviously. So I had rented Halloween 1 from Blockbuster back when I was 14 and watched it and loved it and like I said in, on that podcast, I immediately wanted to go back and get the, the second one the next day. Uh, I had to wait a couple of days, though, but eventually, I think it was within that same week, I went back and rented Halloween 2 and uh, proceeded to watch that about five times before it was due back at the store. <laughs> you know, how awesome is that, though? See, I, I know that we're in a different era with streaming and everything, but how awesome was it to find that gem like that? Where you had the video for a couple of days and you're like, no, no, I'm going to watch the hell out of this before I return it. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I, I missed the video store aesthetic, especially when it came to like horror films, even before I could watch them, before my parents let me watch them. Those were always the ones that had the best cover art that you wanted to go explore in the video store. At least I did. No, for sure. And <laughs> I think that there's all, you know, it's like a lot like the record stores. And I know I'm going to sound like an old man standing on his lawn at this point, but there was something great about it wasn't curated for you it wasn't mm-hmm. recommendations based on anything it was much more shot in the dark but although of course with the case of halloween 2 you had seen the first one you knew you were gonna you know go in for the second one right uh my memory for me is i and i want to say my memory is lying to me but my memory for me is that i saw them on the same night i know that can't be the case but i know that they i saw them in very quick succession because the versions that i saw uh, were the TV versions were the first versions that I saw, especially the first Halloween. And uh, I I remember being very young. I remember finding them on one of the UHF stations 
And so the the memories are intertwined. Halloween and Halloween 2 have always been just intrinsically linked for me. And I think a lot of fans approach it that way. So when you saw Halloween 2 for the first time, did you feel that they fit together as an appropriate piece of a puzzle? Or did you feel that this was sequelitis and it got a little out of control? Where, where did you fall with it? No, I mean, I talked about last time how the, the beauty of the first one is, is that there's no gimmick or there's no uh, mythology to confuse the thing. It was just about the boogeyman going after random people and the random person he happened to pick was Jamie Lee Curtis. So in this one, you do get more of the mythology. We introduce a very big aspect of, of what, what will be the series going forward. But that said, I mean, considering the quality of horror sequels around this time, I really felt that this was a, a, a great follow-up. It's it's not the original, nor can it be. But in terms of, of sequels that that uh, follow up classic originals, I really ended up enjoying this, and hence why I watched it like five more times before I had to return it. Um, I, I kind of hold this as the standard for, for good horror sequels, but I'm sure that's about to get, if the reviews are, turn out to be true, that's about to get replaced by David Gordon Green's Halloween. Um, but, um, what's, what's so interesting for me, as far as my, my feelings on this is that I always felt like, because this is a direct sequel to the first one, it was all one big story for me. So when we first announced that Halloween 2018 was cutting out everything, but the, the first one, I had to get used to the idea of like, well, then we're going to chop off half the story, but we're not really chopping off half the story. It just feels like it's half the story. Yeah. I think that does is that the, sense? yeah, no, it totally does. I, I, you know, I, I completely agree with you that Halloween 2 is a real rarity in terms of horror sequels because it fits so perfectly that you you don't get a sense that this is just capitalizing on anything. This feels like a natural extension of the story. Unquestionably, that's because Carpenter was still involved and, you know, had a hand behind the scenes and, and those sorts of things. But it's so... It's so telling because, like, you look at the other series and Friday the 13th, you know, part two does, you know, Jason finally shows up sort of thing. And so there's the jump scares with that. But it's really just more of the same. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 goes off on this just bat-ass crazy tangent that's just like, like, you see Nightmare on Elm Street and you see Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and you're like, what? Are these movies even related to each other? And they kind of aren't. Like, it's kind of really wild because like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 completely feels like a film that was just appropriated from another property and they said just stick Freddy in it you know Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is the Halloween 3 of that franchise yeah it really really is it really is and although I would well I mean that would be a worthwhile debate about which one was better better. you know Um, but yeah I mean Halloween 2 there's a real effort here and it I think that's really what sort of sets it apart is there's an effort here in the, uh, you know, like the Empire Strikes Back school of we're extending an existing story. We're not just right. capitalizing. We're actually expanding what you know. But it's it's unique even, even compared to something like Empire because I don't know if you can think of any off the top of your head, John, but this is when I say this is a direct sequel, it picks up. 30 seconds after the last one leaves off from the time it takes Donald Pleasance to go from upstairs to downstairs is where Halloween two picks up. Um, 
I can't think of any other sequel that takes place on the same day. I can think of sequels that like have a prologue that take place at the same time, but then jump forward like years later. Yeah. But never a sequel that takes place directly after the events of what you just saw. Usually they 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 start and then it's like five years later, three years later, that sort of thing. Uh I you know, I'm going through the mental Rolodex and I'm thinking Matrix? Is that that's right well, after, isn't it? I guess I guess Rev- Reloaded and Revolutions, maybe, but not not the first to the second one. Oh no, not the first to the second. Oh yeah, no, staying first to the second. Uh, I'm gonna. Well, you don't have to stay first to the second, but I mean, I can't really think of any other sequel that, like, it tells the story from the same night or the oh, same time. Oh yeah, no, I I mean, because the thing is, I think the thing that disqualifies Back to the Future is that it it sort of has its cake and eats it too because it literally jumps what what 40 years into the future right you know okay, so back to the so te- back so to technically future, but back to the future is maybe the closest that we get yeah but yeah it's, no. it's a unique it's a unique sequel in that sense. oh absolutely for sure especially especially in the horror genre i mean because even by this point horror movies are just sort of like grist for the mill they're just spitting them out and just capitalizing on the wave of popularity and I really think it's a rarity for how you know Halloween 2 just uh, seems so committed to making it worth your time to be in there but one thing I wanted to get your opinion on is the violence definitely gets ratcheted up do you oh, yeah. think that that helps or hurts the movie I don't know if it like helps per se but it doesn't hurt it too much for me either I mean it it, it is we are going to have to start accepting the increased violence going forward because this is this movie came out in 1981 and by this point we had already had friday the 13th and friday the 13th part two so by this point uh audiences were kind of conditioned to expect more of a splatter film and i mean except for a few scenes here and there that i think they go really kind of bonkers with it this doesn't feel like your normal exploitative splatter film to me they still managed to keep most of the atmosphere from the, the the first one going forward, but yes, there's a lot more Ace Hardware red paint in this version in this film than there was in the first one. Yeah, on this rewatch, the only the only one that really really jumped out at me as shoehorned in and unnecessary is his first kill, uh, where he kills the girl who comes out to investigate why her neighbor was oh, screaming. Yeah. That is that it, it's so unnecessary and even to a sense um it it doesn't do anything to forward anything like he's even if you look at it from you know one vantage point i i mean the only way i can resolve it is if i do discount the whole sister thing like he's going after his sister because if we accept with the first one that it's just bad luck. Yeah, and, and to be fair, we attention. don't, we don't, we're not told that until almost like two thirds of the way through this movie. True. Very true. Very true. And I, you know, but I mean, that that's the only one where I felt, I mean, it's still well shot. That's, that's the amazing thing is that when she's on the phone and you see him walk through the front door um, to hide so that he can kill her. That's really well shot. Right. It's a really, really well staged scene. My, uh, as the way I always wrote it in my head is, well, he, he he just got shot six times. He's angry. He needs to take it out on somebody. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> and yeah. what's hilarious is that, I mean, 
what I love about this scene, and it includes like getting the the knife from the old lady next door and then mm-hmm. going over to to kill the other girl is they they if you watch the second trailer for this new Halloween 2018, they pay homage to that because they show a scene where he gets another knife from a lady with pink rollers. And I just when I saw that, I was like I was laughing inside. I was so gleeful. Yeah. Well, yes. And the thing is, that's. um that's the way to do, I guess you, you could call it fan service like that. Right. It's the little wink that if you don't know it, it's not going to matter. But if you do know it, it's going to, it's great because you say, Oh yeah, you did your homework. You know what you're, you're talking about here. Yeah, for, for sure. But the, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because there's a part of me that wants to condemn the heightened, uh, violence. I acknowledge what you're saying about, how they're, you know, this is just the era that it's in now. There's no way it can't be a little more derivative of its imitators because it's trying to compete with what it inspired. It's trying mm-hmm. to prove to everybody we deserve to be the big dog on the block. And it should be noted that, like, it, what's interesting is that it was actually John Carpenter who was advocating for more of the gore this time around. You would yeah. think that it's, you would think that. Conventional logic would make you think that it's the new director, Rick Rosenthal, who's advocating for all these changes to make it his property. But no, from what I understand from behind the scenes, it was Carpenter. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned Rosenthal uh, and the behind the scenes stuff, because on the the documentary uh, about Halloween 2, you know, I I thought it was fascinating and insightful uh, from Rosenthal because, of course, people say, they want to make a lot of it. They want to say, oh, well, did Carpenter push you around? Did Was he unhappy with this? There are tons of stories, all unverified, about Carpenter coming in and reshooting this, reshooting that, right. or taking command of the picture. Sort of a uh, Spielberg with poltergeist sort of story. I was going to say, though, I don't get the vibe that this is a Spielberg poltergeist situation, at least from what he's telling me. Right. And Rosenthal, I think, really had what I think was one of the most mature and measured responses to that sort of question that I've ever heard where he said, I came into this and I'm paraphrasing of course, but he says, I came into this. I know this isn't mine. They want me to do this and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the best job I can. But at the end of the day, I'm creating something for someone. And Mm -hmm. if they want to change something, I don't have a problem with that because this is for them. I'm doing this work. And if they don't, you know, if they want, if the producer wants a cut, that's fine. If the director wants a cut, that's fine. If the exec producer wants a cut. And so I I found it very refreshing because a lot of times, you know, to go back to the Poltergeist reference, Toby Hooper gets super, super touchy about people asking about that because the the DGA even did an investigation on Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the... It's just refreshing to see somebody who had come in and was eyes wide open about the situation. He was under no illusions that he was going to make it Rick Rosenthal's Halloween. He was Rick Rosenthal doing a sequel to John Carpenter's movie. You know? I mean, I, I, I admire that. You really feel the... And when you watch the film, because not only do you have like Carpenter and Hill are still writing and they're producing and a lot of the crew is the same. It still has the atmosphere for the most part, the atmosphere of the first one. I think that's also helped by the fact that they got Dean Cundy who shot the first one to come back and shoot this one. And the lighting, the way that the, the mood lighting is still the same. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the lighting in Cundy because there is actually uh, near the end of the film when 
Loomis has gotten to the hospital, and Lori is crawling through the parking lot, and the shape comes around a corner, and there's a red light on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even when he's chasing her in the basement, and he comes around the corner, and there's like that red exit light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Illuminating him. I still, to this day, when I'm walking through a parking structure or a building or anything like that. And there it's dark and there's just that red, like first thing that pops in my mind is, Oh, please don't let the shape come around that corner. Right. Like I will just wet myself and curl into a ball and just accept my fate. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to talk like uh, things that, that really do work for me in this, the chase scenes are great. My favorite sequence I think in the film is the, is the one in the basement with waiting for the elevator and it just closing barely in time. Yeah, the slowest. It's the slowest moving elevator in movie history. Oh, freight, um, freight elevator, freight elevator. That's what right. it is. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think that the the cinematography does help with the with the continuity feel. Oh yeah, no, I, absolutely. Um, you know, I, actually, and I'm sorry to double back, but like in terms of the, there, there's a scene that I'm very conflicted about because, in terms of the ratcheted up gore or whatever. The discovery of the doctor with the needle in his eye. Huh. Like, I, you know, it's a little too much, but the lighting in there is great. And they, when he comes out from the shadows, as I guess just a callback to him coming out of the shadows with Lori, I don't think it works quite Not quite as, as well, well done. But, but it's still very good. Yes. And so that scene still stands out to me. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's, it, it is the lighting in that scene. It's like, this dark yellow dingy lighting. And I think it's also the score that helps too. And that's something that we should talk about because the score was such a character of the first one. And it's part and parcel of this series here. We have the introduction of Alan Howarth, who's doing the music with Carpenter and he's going to stick around until curse of Michael Myers. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to be talking about him for a while now. Um, and so we took the original score and we overlaid an organ synth this time around. And um, I know some people like the period of, of the first score, and I do too, because the first score is so simple. It's just a piano. But I, I like that, the, the, especially with the, the beginning of the main theme and Donald Pleasant's running off after you don't know what death is uh, and how it just kicks in, the, 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 the overlaying the organ on it makes it louder and it makes it feel like we're still in the middle of this huge crisis that we just picked up from whereas the first one is like building toward the crisis. So I think Mm -hmm. it actually fits where we are in terms of the time position of of the events. Yeah, I mean, there's more weight to it. And if you've just plugged a guy with um, somewhere between six and seven shots from your... He says six, but it's seven. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, but, you know, if if you've just uh, plugged a guy and he's fallen off the balcony... And you come down and all that's there is a blood smear on the lawn. Yeah. I, you know, I think that that justifies a ratcheted uh, main theme and score through the thing. Because, you know, the, what do they say at the end of the, the first one? You know, it really was the bo- boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And at this point, yes, you're starting off not from discovering Michael Myers, but knowing what he is and finding out basically that he might be unstoppable is a whole other thing. Like, that's a whole... And I know that when I... Like, I agree with the comment. The first one has a purity that's very unsettling and is very effective. 
But when I want to sort of slide into a Halloween mood, I won't lie, Halloween 2 is the one I go to first just because I do like that that synth on top of it. It is really good. And you know what's encouraging, John, is <laughs> I've tried to stay as spoiler-free for this new Halloween as possible, but they've come out with clips and little things with the the, the score and everything. And the, the wonderful thing about, I think we're going to both end up liking this score very much, not just because it's Carpenter, which is to foreshadow, I think that this new score from the stuff that I've heard is a synthesis between the score for one and the score for two. So I think, and I think it's going to be the perfect marriage. Uh, yeah. And I think that that is, you know, that's beautiful because what it seems to me then is that they're acknowledging that there was a lot right with two. And I think that's the thing that should be uh, celebrated as much right. as there are things that aren't great about two. Um, you know, Lori's not in it very much. Yeah, I, that's something yeah. I, I think we'll get to in a minute. But compared to the first one, I feel that the pacing's a bit more off in this one. Yeah, you know, I um the the stuntman who played the shape in this one, um, he Dick Warlock. Yeah, Dick Warlock. He said that at the end of it, Deborah Hill had made a comment to him that he didn't move right. And right. the shape moves differently in this, but I not so not much that, that differently, it, huh? Yeah, not right. that differently. Yeah, I, and so, but I, you know, knowing that, I really sort of kept an eye on it this time. And if he's moving a little slower, I think it's you know to get back to the point of he's been shot several times and stabbed. Right. Even if he's the boogeyman, you know, even even in a video game, the boss takes damage. And might move a yeah. little differently. And I mean, we, we're not supposed to forget, like by the end of this movie, he's still, John Carpenter still wrote this movie with him as being mortal in mind, because this was supposed to be the end, which we'll talk about next time when they when we talk a little <laughs> bit briefly about yes. three. But this was supposed to be the end. So he's still quote unquote mortal in this. Right. And I think that, I think that, the shape moving around because you see him walk through and walk past things. The thing that really strikes me is that it's not his movement that is off. It's how unpopulated this hospital is. <laughs> like, yeah. I know that they're in the middle, you know, oh, they're a small town. Well, if they're a small town, that's an awfully big hospital. And it's a, it's not like a little clinic. It's a multi-level Right. There's at least four levels, according to that elevator that we see. Right, and there there's an operating room. Um, so obviously they, you know, they they treat uh, regular injuries, and we actually see uh, again getting back to the increased gore. And I actually, oh, that's so gross. Yeah, I know what you're going to talk about. Blade. I just, I don't like it. That's one of the things I don't like. I don't like it either, and I really don't like the fact that. In a sense, what it's what I think one of its greater sins is, is that it gives weight to that urban legend that was always going around. Yeah, for 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 people who don't know what we're talking about, a boy and his mother show up at the hospital right around the same time that Lori gets there, and it's clear that he's been the victim of a razor in the in the apple or whatever. So you know, it's got ice and blood in his mouth, and it's just kind of it's it's icky. It's it, there was no. I guess it's to show that there are other people in the hospital, but that's the only other evidence we see of anybody there. Yeah. And throughout this whole film. Uh, yeah. Well, there are babies there, but no mothers apparently. Right. That's a very 
weird thing because he goes into a nursery and there's only one nurse on staff. All the doors are closed. I, um, I've had the, the great honor and joy uh, three times of being present for the birth of children. And I can tell you that a maternity ward is not quiet. It is no. a hopping place to be no, 24-7. So it's like... Uh, Regardless of whether it's Halloween night. Right. And they never... they You know, the, the nursery itself, the lights are out, and they don't really do that. And you go and you the, the baby gets... Car- you know, now... Yeah, but the lights aren't even like half the lights are out. Like, right. And then the, the the further down the hall is lit. Right. <laughs> and it's just it's just bizarre because I think that I think make, that what it, happened it looks like looks like they haven't paid their electric bill or something. <laughs> yeah, right. I I think that what happened is they got a great concept and it was I I don't think that it was and I'm not saying this to cast aspersions on anybody, but I think that sometimes you get a great concept. You say, yeah, we're going to put it in a hospital. Yeah, and it's not very busy. And then somebody doesn't do the research. If he had never gone to the maternity ward, I would never have this question in my brain. Right. I would say, oh, well, he just stayed out in the parts of the hospital that people weren't in. Well, given the the, the geography of this hospital, we're not even sure if that is the, supposed to be in the maternity ward. Like, I know in real life that's where it would be, but it looks like they just stick all these babies in some random room. <laughs> Maybe they're having the moms trick-or-treat for their babies. I don't know. But you know what I mean? There's yeah. nothing about the surroundings except for the fact that they're there to indicate to me that it's the maternity ward. Right, and to give the audience a thrill that he's near babies. Oh no, he's near babies, sort of thing. I so, mean, and, you know, but the shot's still cool of him standing oh, yeah. in the shadows behind everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we can, you know, we can fairly talk about some of the issues we have with this film while still acknowledging that it, its strength is a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think one of the biggest things that you hit on for me in terms of issues, though, is. For me, the pacing and a lot of that, I think, comes from the fact that, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis and Laurie Strode are in this movie, but she because she's injured and in this hospital, she's doped up for like the first two thirds. So Laurie's there, but she's not an active character until the end. And that's when the movie takes off. Yeah. When Laurie gets involved. When she decides to be in it again, it's great. Yeah, because it's it's Laurie taking control of her situation again. And I think that the thing that is like, it makes sense story wise, character wise, everything that she'd be in the hospital, that they would have oh, yeah. her doped up. It doesn't make sense that they wouldn't have a, a police guard outside her door. But all of that aside, like it really does come alive with her. And I think that's why I, it's just a testament to how important a character Lori is, of course, but also what a great actress that uh, that Jamie Lee Curtis is because right. it's her energy that brings the movie to life. And this could easily be, you know, for her, she didn't necessarily want to come back, but she felt that she owed it to the fans and to John and Deborah to come back. And to her credit, I mean, she is she's not phoning in this performance, even though she's supposed to be drugged for half of it. Right. Right. And it's. um, It's interesting because they have sort of a love story sort of thing start happening with it with her Uh, and Jimmy. Yeah. With her and Jimmy. What do you think of that? It's interesting. I mean, like I wish they would explore it more. Now there is 
there is fan retcon canon that Jimmy's name is actually Jimmy Lloyd, and this is going to be Jamie's father mm-hmm. um, later on, which I guess works if you, especially if you watch the. There's an alternate take of the ending where Jimmy survives, or they make it clear that he survives. Right. Um, but I mean, it endears. It makes Jimmy probably the most endearing character of this new cast. I'll say that much. Yeah. Uh, I, the. Uh... And I fumble names and everything, but the the slimy EMT. Oh, uh, um, Bud. Bud. Yeah. Who's I, always playing slimy because he's one of the people in the infamous scene, and um, he's in The Accused with Jodie Foster. Uh, That's movie, the other one I know him from. A movie I've never seen. Uh, yeah. And based on its reputation, I'm not sure that I want to. I mean, it's a great <laughs> film, but yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he brings a little bit of levity i guess but i think it it it's more of the derivative sort of levity he's the type of character i'd expect to see more in a friday the 13th movie than yeah. Halloween. you know like he seems like he just doesn't belong here because he's the type of guy you don't mind he's gonna die i mean i guess to a certain extent like linda's boyfriend in the first one bob is sort of this character but this one this guy is a little bit more scuzzy yeah. um but in a sliding st- scale in, in terms of like scuzzy kind of creepy characters, I mean, we're not in Rob Zombie territory yet. So, yeah. I mean, he's, it, it, I hate to say it, he's the fun, quote unquote, fun kind of scuzzy. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's the, he's the, you know, he's the jackass that everybody, all of us have known a guy sort of like this, where it's like, he's not, he's not a bad person, but he's not a good person he's just sort of like yeah okay all right yeah that that's funny to you that's cool that's cool you know like right. I, I can understand the the uh his uh, version of amazing grace which i won't repeat but makes me laugh every time yeah. which was apparently improv yeah yeah so you know hats off to him hats off to him um but i i think that uh you know obviously we're going to be picking up this conversation over on missing frames uh, mm-hmm. with Sean because he hasn't seen Halloween two yet. He's going to see the new one and then he's going to see Halloween two. Then we're going to compare notes. Yeah. But we haven't talked directly about Dr. Loomis yet. No, we haven't. And what's interesting about this is that it gives Loomis more stuff to do. Now he, be- he starts to become more of the big character that he'll be later, but he's still pretty restrained in this comparatively speaking. But I think Donald Pleasance lets the and the writing lets the character come a little bit more alive than he was in the first one because now everybody knows that he was right. He spends the whole first movie trying to convince people of, of the danger that they're in and nobody believes him. So now all of a sudden he's the expert on on Michael Myers. Yes. And and acknowledged, but also strangely pulled out at one moment, uh, which is I, it seems almost like they needed to create an obstacle uh, for him to overcome. And I'm not, I, I don't have a problem with it. I'm not trying to say that. Also too, they, they needed a reason. They needed an event to happen to where he will learn that Laurie Strode is his sister. Yeah. Which is, which doesn't make sense no. when you think about it, because I mean, if he spent 15 years with this kid and you know, eight of eight of which you tried to, to get through to him, I find it very hard to believe, and I, I just go with it because I, I have to, and it doesn't, in the end, it doesn't hurt the movie that much, but I find it very hard to believe that he 
knew about the sister who was stabbed. He obviously knows as much as he can know about Michael, but somehow the fact that Michael had a younger sister slipped through the cracks. Right. The only way that you could possibly fan retcon it in your head is that by the time he was assigned to the case, like months later or something, they had already spirited Lori away. But given the fact that Michael never says a thing, all you have is that he stabbed his sister it's not like he's written some manifesto that I must kill all of my family members. So right. why would they have even looked into it? Why would they have even done that? Because the, you know, unless I guess the parents are dead or, or what have you. Um, also made me wonder too, like was, because we never really find out in this timeline, was she even born yet when he killed the older sister? I mean, cause that's a good question. They mentioned that the parents died two years after, the um he killed his sister so i guess maybe she could have been born in that interim but but then it doesn't make sense like how would he know about her being as it's it's right because she has up into a a conundrum because you have to think for this whole time that michael myers knows that laurie start as a sister well she has the drug flashback of seeing him as a kid now that's the thing is that (laughs) what do you make of that scene do you think that that was real did that really happen? Because it's it's so bizarre. I always took it as such. I took it that she's remembering about Michael. And that she um, repressed it? I guess. Um, I, I think, and I, I, as you, you know, you've pointed out numerous times, uh, uh, and you're right to do so, is that the sister thing was the product of writer's block, right? Isn't yeah. That the, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a well-known story if you look at the behind the scenes that, John Carpenter never intended to write a sequel. It was supposed to be a standalone film so that when he was tasked to write Halloween two, he needed to come up with some reason why they still have, he's still going after Laurie Strode when there's so many other people in the town that he could be going after as evidenced by that first kill. Right. Um, so I think at that time, the only way he thought he could do it, he says it was credit to, it being two in the morning and he already had gone through two cases of beer where the best thing he could come up with was that Laurie Strode was his sister. Now I think part of the reason he's coming back for this new one, he didn't write the new one, but I think he's involved with this new one because as a way to sort of atone for that, because it just seems to me in this new one, he's going to be killing people, but Laurie Strode holds a special place because she was the one that got away. So here's a question for you. Okay. Halloween two, in a sense, is the reason that the franchise goes on. Would you agree with that? It is, but it's also the reason it gets handcuffed to the family thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. Like it's a, it's a blessing and a curse for it. I think that if it had stopped at two, if we had never gotten anything after two, a lot of the things that we've gone back and sort of, you know, poked at, we wouldn't, because, as you just said, it handcuffs to the family thing. And I think that is the that is the biggest hurdle for it. Yeah, and, and it stays that way for almost almost the next 30 years. It's not until we get this film this year that we're finally discharging the whole family angle. Right. And that is, I, you know, I, just, just as a final... Final question, you know, discussion point. Uh, I have a friend who has a huge problem with the fact that they are dismissing that. And I'm guessing you fall, as I do, on 
the self-reflective bend of, yes, I love Halloween too, but honestly, maybe it wasn't the best choice. Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned this on some other podcast, but when they first announced that this new movie was going to be discounting everything after one, which included obviously two, it took me a minute. Like, I wasn't, I didn't react badly, but I, it was just one of those things where like, I had accepted for a very, very long time that just Laurie Strode was Michael Myers' sister. We had no reason to question that. It just was for, you know, 30 some years. And so it took me a minute. It's just like, well, I'm going to have to get used to this. Like she thinking of her, her not, th- not thinking of her as the sister anymore. But as more and more of the behind the scenes on this new one came out and what they're trying to do with the story, I really do think they made the right decision because I mean, the sister thing works here and it works in certain of the other sequels, but it, it it does become a crutch, especially when we get to stuff like the the zombie remakes, which, you know, it, it's interesting that they could, they had the opportunity in that, in those movies to discharge the sister thing because it's a remake. There's no reason to right. be beholden to the sister thing, especially if it came in two, but they, he, you know, zombie inserted it back in one, you know, in the, his first reboot that she's still the sister. Right. So, I mean, We've been with it for so long. I think it's time to to get a fresh perspective. And by by not ma- not making it the sister, I think it could actually have the potential to be more powerful. And I think we're seeing that with especially with some of the stuff I've read in the reviews. Yeah, uh, I agree. I agree. So I think that this is a tantalizing enough appetizer. And you, dear audience, can follow us over. Uh, for a continuation of this discussion over on Missing Frames uh, here on the Nerd Party, where we'll be discussing this with Sean Eastridge, uh, especially after his uh, viewing of Halloween in 2018. And uh, so, Matt, if people want to continue the discussion with you, uh, where can they track you down? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter at mhansen 207 sen and you can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. And here on the network, I'm co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with Matthew Rushing. So until then, remember... John, it was the boogeyman. As a matter of fact, it was. It was.